Welcome to Machinations, a mecha and giant robot-focused podcast. I'm Ignis Maddox, joined by my esteemed hosts and friends, Stephen Hero and PMC Trilogy. How you guys doing this week? We're back. We're back to We're back. the three of us recording. We took a small break because I was jettisoned into space and I was marooned in a ball, which was unpleasant for me, but I figured it out. Uh, it was a whole thing. I met someone from the opposing side. We fell in mm. love. There was a there was a lot of stuff that occurred, uh, but you know what? I'll tell you guys about it later. It wasn't <laughs> well, that yeah. big a deal. We'll cover that some other time. That whole <laughs> <Yeah>. adventure. <laughs> that's a that's a whole other story, I guess. <laughs> um, how how you boys been this week? Pretty good. I, I enjoyed watching PMC wrap up uh, Xenosaga this weekend. It was fun to watch. Oh yeah. Well, we will definitely talk about that more. But but Stephen, before we dive into that. I wanted to ask you, you've talked about this a little bit, and we took a break from it last yeah. week because we were we were in the land of Erebonia uh, complaining about, I don't know, whatever I was complaining about. <laughs> a podcast I really enjoyed, but a lot of the proper nouns went right over my head. I mean, that's just going to happen. That's just going to happen. If you, if, you think, if you think that Trails is proper nouns, wait till I, I have my chat with PMC later. But, but speaking of proper <laughs> nouns, you, you did kind of hint that you were diving into a, 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 not a new world, I guess. I guess this is an old world. Even the, the, the base setting for Star Wars is a long time ago. So this is like a long, long time ago. This is the the, uh, the the High Republic books, I think you were. Oh, no, unless you were reading the other ones. I forget. You told us about two different series. What do you want to talk to us about today? All right, so as I've hinted recently, I have a lot of Marins in the chamber that are building up that I'm going to Intro discs. We have rebranded. Uh, in- that's right. Intro discs That's right. the course of the next few weeks. I've never listened to a, a Mark Marin podcast, <laughs> so we shouldn't call them Marins. <laughs> we, we, intro discs is our rebrand. Anyway, Stephen, go ahead. I shouldn't interrupt you. No, it's all right. And I have, uh, the next four weeks, I'll be regaling you with Star Wars ancillary material from the now canon expanded universe. I mentioned, like, I've been, like, not on a Star Wars kick, but I've been, like, diving into Star Wars stuff for the last, like, year and a half. I mentioned that I played through, uh, through Jedi Order, Fallen Order. I mentioned I played through Squadrons. And my interest now has extended to the books. There are two reasons for this. One, as... Along with my co-host, we've been watching Clone Wars and listening to the excellent A More Civilized Age podcast, which has really spurred my interest in all things Star Wars. Uh, I guess more personally, though, I've been spending a lot of time holding a baby and uh, have gotten really adept at reading with one hand. Mass market paperbacks, particularly Star Wars mass market paperbacks, because there's a particular size that Del Rey uses, is absolutely perfect for that. Also, what's perfect for that is Joy-Cons. I've noticed that I could hold a baby and hold the two. It's the first time I've had a use for Joy-Cons, and I've been doing a lot of grinding in SMT3, which I'll talk about in a future intro disc. So uh, so I, I see you every once in a while on the, the Switch internet, and it'll be like uh, 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 Steven Hero, that's not his Switch name, playing Shin Megami <laughs> Tensei Nocturne. And I'll be like, now from now on, I'll imagine... Both dongles and then a third demon arm that is holding your your baby as you're, as you're playing Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. Uh, she likes to hold things and like put them in her mouth. So I gave her my busted Joy Cons, which are still unfortunately connected to the Switch. So I need to. I don't know how to like depower Joy Cons. Just to, I would have to like idly use them for hours on end. Well, because the old ones are still charged. As I understand it, you could. Uh, I mean, if unless they're. Oh boy, I don't even know why I'm saying this. I assume you're not like setting up your baby with the little like switch on things <laughs> that the dongles have, but uh no no no. Uh inside that bit, 
there is the the Bluetooth connection button, that little guy that you can mm. press for connection. If you hit that while they're connected to your Switch, it will because it, you're telling it to look for something to connect to, it will disconnect it from your Switch. I, I know this is that thrilling podcast content that Mechanation's <laughs> listeners come to. I mean, that's a which vital is, PSA, sounds like to me. It's, <laughs> you know, the Switch controllers are a great mystery. I mean that sincerely. <laughs> I'm not making fun of anyone. <laughs> so, so, so you're reading the physical novels then. You're not, like, picking them up on Kindle or whatever and using a, a, that kind of device for it? No, I'm, I'm a stodgy traditionalist in that regard. Um, actually, I don't know if I've ever fully read an ebook. I've purchased ebooks and skim them for research for articles, like doing Control-F. But I think that's the extent of it. Mm-hmm. I much prefer reading with a paperback. It's just, it's, it's wired into my DNA. So which one were you going to talk to us about today? I guess we should actually talk about the content and not the medium by which you, uh, <laughs> you uh, achieved this. I'm going to talk about a trilogy. In the future uh, intro disc, I'm going to talk about individual novels. But for now, well, my opinions are pretty lukewarm on the Aftermath trilogy in general, so... It's a more perfunctory read of a rather perfunctory trilogy. To give some background, the writer in question, his name is Chuck Wendig, and it's his Aftermath trilogy. And the first book was called Aftermath. Interestingly enough, it's, it's, cent- it's rather central to the new canon because it is the first book that came out after Disney reset everything um, following when they purchased Star Wars. Um, so it came out actually a few months before The Force Awakens, and the purpose of the trilogy is really to do some heavy lifting for the sequel trilogy, because the, there's the creative choice by Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. with Force Awakens to be a lot lighter on lore, a direct response to some of the criticisms of the prequels. Huh. So no, you know, no, one wa- no one wants like trade federation negotiations. So you know, they wanted, as, as I n- understand it, they wanted to go back to something a little more archetypal and more mythic. So for example, a lot of people were confused like what the, who the resistance was. Now you can piece that together through context clues, but these books lay the groundwork more specifically for the birth of the First Order. So these are all post-Return the Jedi books, and there are three. I'll very quickly go over the plot summary for each. The first book that came out, Star Wars Aftermath. So this, is, this deals immediately in the post-Battle of Endor era. Um, the Empire's still around, still kicking, very fragmented, though. And it's trying to... The various disparate forces are trying to um, work to consolidate the empire's power in the wake of Palpy's death and, of course, the destruction of the second Death Star. Um, I guess the main character, main imperial character in this regard, her name is Ray Sloan. She's appeared in a lot of comics, I think mentioned in maybe Battlefront 2. She's the admiral of the imperial fleet, and she organizes a clandestine meeting on the planet of Akiva. So she wants to have like this kind of like this UN council of various tribal leaders and in order to you know, bring the empire back together. Of course, this being Star Wars, a ragtag group of rebels, including you have an imperial dissenter. These are all very archetypal figures. Uh, a principal bounty hunter is a veteran rebel pilot. She piloted a Y-Wing during the Battle of Endor. Uh, she has a son who's a tinkerer who has a droid and a few other people, and they attempt to thwart the Empire's plans. That's Aftermath. Next book, Life Debt comes out the next year. Uh, Chewbacca has been captured by imperial forces. Uh, we see a lot of familiar figures. Um, reappear in this novel, particularly Han and Leia. Um, the New Republic uh, is going through some growing pains. They do not consider the planet of Kashyyyk to be a priority, despite the fact that you know various war heroes are pushing to liberate the planet of Kashyyyk. So Leia and Han roll up their sleeves, work together with the previous mentioned group of dissenters, 
and they hatch a plan to liberate Kashyyyk. That's a lot of other things go on, but that's the basic uh, plot summary for Life Debt. And Empire's End deals with essentially the Battle of Jakku. Um, so there's this mysterious imperial figure, Gallius Rax in the background, kind of like Palpy's heir, basically an orphan picked up by Palpy mm. and uh, used as a potential crump, trump card in case Palpy kicks it. And he's bringing all, every single remaining imperial ship to Jakku. They occupy the planet, and they're hatching something, which really is the origins of the First Order. The New Republic decides to get off its ass and like, wipe out the Empire for good. Um, so there's some politicking on Mon Mothma's part, but they aim to snuff out the Empire once and for all, which happens. But of course, that leads to the birth of the First Order. So that's a basic summary of the three books. And my reaction to them, interestingly enough, and this wasn't purposeful on my part, as we go through my little reviews of these books, they go from, I guess, the books I was least favorable on, and I'll end with the book I'm most favorable on. I won't spoil it just yet. Um, these books are perfunctory. I, I feel like I tried out the same criticisms with, like, I guess, middling Star Wars books or video games. Like, and I always say this, even about the most uninteresting Star Wars stuff. They do some necessary and interesting world building, and that's kind of why, where I'm at with Star Wars books in general. Um, I'm not looking for anything like significantly thematic or like something that sheds light on the human condition. I'm really either looking for like a swashbuckling adventure or usually just some fun world building. Can I ask you something, Stephen? Of, of course. Yeah, so I've got a question about... So I've read a lot of these kinds of books. I, I, you know, yeah. I have no shame about what, what I'm about to pick up and read. I've read the x-men and star trek tng crossover book and found it very fun so something that i i tend to judge these books on is if they uh give me some kind of interesting new perspective on these characters because a lot of the time either because of author skill or because they had their hands tied it's not going to be rooted in something you know literary like it's like emotional or it's got some grander thematic thing going on that's not normally what these are going to do um yeah. and and when and when these do that they're they're fun and that's like a, a fun a fun treat that i got for me you know uh, i got some some thematic content um can you say though when you read these that it at least gave you, do you think any of them gave you like a, a fun new thing to think about when you watch either the characters or the Star Wars world? Because there's a couple that, that I can think of that I can at least, you know, harken back to. Oh, this is the one when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon spend some time with the Jedi who fucks, you know? And, and <laughs> thinking about them being friends with the Jedi who fucks colors some things about Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's relationships, right? So that's something. You know, like, can you feel like, did you feel like any of these gave you even that? Yes. So some of these books, like a lot of Star Wars writers, Wendig, number one, his writing style is very kinetic. Um, in a somewhat respect, kind of Hemingway-esque in its minimalism. Like, it's very, uh, his writing deals with a lot of predicates and verbs, very short and terse sentences that throw you into the action, mm. which really complements a more swashbuckling adventure. They're I won't say they're beach reads because they're not necessarily the most compelling things to move through, but they are—they keep me occupied at a quick pace, and the chapters are um, very deliberately and well-paced. Mm. He excels, I would think, at world-building. Um, in between the chapters, he includes these interludes, which are vignettes that largely are unrelated to the central narrative. This is the most interesting thing about these books, because they shed light on what's going on in the far-flung corners of the galaxy after the return of the Jedi. Mm. These are very short chapters, like three to eight pages long. 
And there's three I want to focus on, uh, which I think are just like the concepts are dope. Like there's one very short chapter that focuses on the Alderanian refugees, and they establish something referred to as the Alderaan Flotilla, which is just the remaining population of Alderaan. They have a group of starships, and they decided to house this flotilla in the asteroid belt that now exists where their planet did. Um, and the New Republic has gifted them the remains of the first Death Star. And they said, you know, use this material to build a space station and make a more permanent home. And I thought that was just, like, super neat and a, a bit of imaginative lore that kind of keeps bringing me back to this Star Wars material because I like seeing the pieces, the puzzle pieces fall into place. I, I, I'm not interested in any other franchise like this, but now for Star Wars, I don't really care about, like, things that I harp on with other things like characterization or theme. I'm just interested to see the puzzle pieces come together often. Uh, we're given glimpses into Coruscant, which is cool. After Return of the Jedi, it's been cut off from both the Republic and the Empire. So you know the dude from Return of the Jedi with the horns who stands next to Palpy when he announces the Empire? He's blue. His name is Mas Ameda. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's like Palpy's successor, and he's like a puppet leader at this point. And he falls into despair as his, the Empire falls around him. And it's really cool to see this group of, like, this grassroot, grassroot group of, like, Coruscant dissidents just, like, do, what, do the work that needs to be done to overthrow the Empire when the Republic is not willing, the New Republic is not willing to jump in. And the most interesting thing I picked up from these vignettes is we're introduced to Cobb Vanth. I didn't know Cobb Vanth in The Mandalorian Season 2 was a deep cut to something else. He's played by... Timothy Oliphant, you know, the Deadwood-inspired episode sure. from season two, like the super Western one. Uh, and he shows up here, and we get three separate vignettes throughout the three books about how he picks up the Mandalorian, Boba Fett's armor. And I thought that was neat characterization, because that was one of my favorite episodes from uh, Mando season two. So these little vignettes that shed light on the larger world, these are really interesting. Overall, though, I would say the trilogy suffers from the same thing that Rogue One suffers from, is its inability to introduce a cast that's interesting. And I cannot, this, it, they come across as so uninspired that I am unable to connect to any of them or become attached to anything, any of them. And that's not going to be a criticism I have for all of these books. And then there's the legacy characters, particularly in books two and three. This is really tough, and I don't envy any writer who has to do this. Because when you're writing Han Solo or Princess Leia, they're such mythical characters that they've like ascended into a sense of, they've ascended into pop cultural heaven and... Everyone has their own headcanon, and it's going to be difficult to provide interiority to these characters that satisfies everyone. But you don't want your char characterization to come across as hokey. Like, there are only so many times that Han can say, never tell me the odds in one of these books before it becomes, before it seems like super forced oh, no. or even like commercially driven. Yeah. Before you have oh, a bad no. feeling. Yeah. yeah. Han, Why does he Han's say that in right. the book? That's not. That's a weird thing for him to have to say. Like again, that's such a strange I, thing. And I get that feel occasionally. With so there are some t like established tertiary characters that Wendig does really well. Wedge and Mon Mothma. Not that I agree with all of Mothma's political positions, but her dilemma is well articulated in the books. And I, there's moments where like Wedge actually got some interesting characterization, which I enjoyed. Chewie and Han get some decent characterization, but again, it comes across as like hokey, mm -hmm. like that old religion, as Han would say from uh, A New Hope. So for anyone interested in these Star Wars, or jumping into Star Wars books, I would say the Wendig books are, if you've wondered like, about the origins of the First Order, it's kind of a must. It, 
it doesn't necessarily it never mentions the resistance by name as that happens later on but it establishes the political dilemma um, that has or i guess the political tensions that has to have to exist for something like the resistance to emerge in a post imperial world and i'm interested if any of the other books touch upon that in the future um, but the main dilemma is do we militarize the New Republic or do we not militarize the New Republic, which is a conversation that's also occurring in the High Republic books, and we'll talk more about that when we get to those. No, you know, it's interesting because something that the High Republic book that I read I felt like was trying hard to establish, it was that there was a, a setting to the universe that was different than how Star Wars as we perceive it is. And, and the reason for that, I always assumed, was because... There was an evil Dagnasty wizard at, at the, the, the heart of everything that was basically, like, guiding the universe to corruption. And it's interesting that these three books that are kind of meant to uh, onboard you into the sequel universe are kind of making that opposite argument that, like... And I understand that this is a view that a lot of people like to have about Star Wars, that, that it's a more grounded realistic setting where you know even when you you kill the main bad guy at the top that there are other problems that are going to erupt just because of the tensions of other other places but i mean as you as i'm sure we'll talk about next week like a uh, high republic definitely makes the argument that the that the universe is a fundamentally like good and noble place and that's kind of it's like main thrust and it seemed always seemed to me writing the first high republic book that uh they're trying hard to canonize that. Uh, and yeah. it's funny that the Aftermath books and whatnot are basically making that opposite argument. That it's like, oh no, uh, the, you know, there's always going to be... Because like, that's kind of the, as I understand it, the, the roots of the First Order. Is that it's like a like disaffected reactionaries that preferred you know, the, the, the Imperial way. Um, yeah. I, I will say... Um, if you take just looking at the trilogy and you're curious, like, which one's best, I'm pretty lukewarm on the first two. I don't know which one's better. I think I'm, I think the worst one's if – if, if I had to answer, the worst one's the second book. Um, there's a lot of fluff and there's a lot of padding. And I don't think – there's a way to make the liberation of Kashyyyk exhilarating, kind of like in Fallen Order, even, of course, they don't liberate the entire planet. That's not really present because there's not really a charismatic hero at the center of it like there was with Fallen Order. But – the Battle of Jakku slaps. It's really expertly written, and that whole battle takes about 50 to 75 pages. It really, that part's a real page-turner, and there's a lot of really epic set pieces that come across well in prose, which is difficult to do. Um, so if you make it that far, you have that to look forward to. Nice. I, I might disagree with you about Fallen Order having a charismatic protagonist at its core, but but otherwise, yeah, that sounds good. I, I, I was referring to Saul Guerrero, not... Kestin. Oh sure, 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 sure. Not Archie Bunker, or, or I couldn't Archie even Bunker, remember his not... name. I was about to say Saul Kestis. It's not what Archie it's... Bunker is not Cal... the Archie I'm thinking of. That's a different Archie, actually. Cal Kestis, right? Cal Kestis. Yes, Cal Kestis. I don't even dislike Cal that much. I, I just would be. I, I just don't think charismatic is the way I would describe oh, his yeah. character. Um, but yeah, that's that's cool. I'm excited to hear more about your Star Wars novel takes as we as we continue forward. I I wasn't that interested in the Chuck Wendig books, and I'm glad now I don't have to read them. That's that's fun for me. I not for a specific reason. I mean, I know some people don't like Chuck Wendig online, but I I don't really follow that particular discourse super closely, oh. so I don't know. 
Oh, you just stirred my memory, but we can't yeah. dive into that. No, okay. I know I, I know why people don't <laughs> like him. I, I just don't think that's a yeah. Machinations conversation necessarily, yeah. other than, I don't know, libraries are good, actually, is what yeah. I would say. And yes. people should have... Oh, is he secretly bad? I had no uh, idea. I don't know about secret. Yeah, it's not <laughs> a secret. It's right there on his about, Twitter account. Um, I wouldn't know about bad, necessarily. I, I guess, yes, uh, depending on... Yeah, I don't know. This is kind of a big conversation. I think maybe that his motivations weren't necessarily... I don't know. Just look up Chuck Wendig and internet resources and, and see what comes up. And you'll see what I what, what, what we're referring to here. Uh, but yeah. Uh, anyway, this was not the Stephen Hero blasting hour. <laughs> this was the... <laughs> I assumed you knew about this, being a, being a teacher and whatnot. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, PMC uh, recently... You completed a, I guess, retro? Ugh. Retro? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's re- I feel like it, it feels very retro because of the Namco logo all over it, you know? The, pre, the pre-Bandai the Namco logo being on that Xenosaga Episode 1 box. Yes, I believe. So Xenosaga Episode 1 came out in Japan in 2002 and then in America in 2003. Is that correct? I believe that's I, correct, yes. Okay, so 2003 American launch... Uh, Tetsuya Takahashi and Soraya Saga returning to long-form RPG storytelling. This was to be the Final Fantasy X killer. Mm-hmm. They, they released this. They said to Namco, "We're definitely, we're definitely going to to shoot those square square bastards out of the water." Uh, it didn't work, not really. But PMC, what do you think of Xenosaga One? Derils are mocked. I think it is a very it is it is an extremely confident game and I love it for that. I think it it does exactly what it wants to on multiple fronts. It is very confidently unafraid to be the first episode of a long saga. You know, there's lots of things that are never explained. Stuff happens. You know, I, I could list off all sorts of characters who we don't know what their deal is. You know, we Chaos, Virgil, Wilhelm. Uh, you know, we could, and frankly, a bunch of our player characters, <laughs> like, we don't really know what's going on with them. Uh, but I also say it's confident because it has uh, a very interesting mix of battle systems. And it is, uh, Xenogears, I think, was very much characterized in my mind by uh, by puzzle-like encounters. And a lot of those encounters return in, in Xenosaga from Xenogears. But it also, uh, I think, in Xenosaga... You have surprising flexibility in your tool set and in how you develop your characters. You can just sort of, if you grind enough and get enough points, you can just throw magic spells on from this character to this character. You could grind money, get really into the mech stuff. Uh, you could you could go all sorts of directions, uh, and it's it's fascinating in that I think if you really cared about the systems, you, you would find it fun to replay and especially revisit. You know, maybe after future versions came out. So I. It's, you know, of course, a shame that I guess this plan didn't work out, but, you know, to me, the execution was there. I, I, I Also, can we just, Shion Uzuki is an incredibly compelling main character for a JRPG. Like, she's just very good. Uh, she's got, she's got characters, she's got stuff to say, she has relationships with just about everybody, and there's a lot of relationships among the player cast, which I think is something that's always important in a JRPG. You can't just have a bunch of, you know, sketches. They need right. to bounce off each other. Uh, and, and that's something that happens in, in Xenosaga uh, to, to great effect. 
The only complaint I could really say is just that I, I needed more music. There's a lot of silence in the game, and sometimes the silence can work. You know, it's in space, it's quiet. You hear mechanical sounds, footsteps. Sound design is is good, uh, but you know, a little too much silence. Besides that, though, I I just it was it was a great time. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I think um, especially framing it against Final Fantasy X. Uh, uh, you know, I love uh, Mitsuda. Mitsuda does great work, and the tracks that are in Xenosaga One are 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 pretty good. I I really like the battle theme. It's pretty great. It's mm-hmm. it's a good song for literally every battle but one, which is true in Xenosaga One. Um, <laughs> but and the final boss theme slaps, mm-hmm. and there's slaps. a bunch of other tracks that are very very good. Joanne Hobbs back for the ending. Yes, Get some Albedo's tracks. Big, spooky theme the the one with the the yes that one's real good um you know uh the thing i would say about what you had to say about Zen saga is that one i would agree that Xion is an incredibly unique protagonist and that uh she doesn't kind of get the the highlighting that she deserves mostly because she is I think she has become a, a kind of waifu to to the fandom, and and I think that th- that her character, and you'll see as as you get to if you ever get to Zenith Saga three, especially you will see where the this character can really be unique amongst fellows. Like I think the closest I can think of to someone who is like Shion in a JRPG would be the main character of uh, Tales of Berseria, Velvet, mm, okay. uh, uh, in the way that. You know, you have lady main characters of JRPGs, but rarely are they as terribly flawed as Xion and Velvet are. Xion, obviously, we, we, we are introduced to when we spend the whole game with her, but there's a lot of stuff that we only have uh, uh, alluded to thus far, like the events of Milsha 14 years ago mm-hmm. and how those those bad memories seem to unite our entire cast, right? Which was the point of that Encephalon sequence. Right. They all have some connection to Milsha 14 years ago. Um, uh, there's, you know, a, an incredible amount of world building. Uh, uh, everything that happens in the game uh, eventually will have a payoff, I could, I could tell you, in a way that I don't think any other series can really attest to in the same way. Maybe .hack. I actually, I'm not as familiar with .hack. I think if you ever play Xenosaga 2, now by the time Xenosaga 2 came out, the 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 coffin was well and surely You're shut right. on the six game yeah. thing. Like the the lack of success from Xenosaga one meant they were not going to do six games. Um, but the if, when you play Xenosaga two, you will feel like yeah, there were this this wasn't going to sustain six games anyway. They might have had a plan for six games. Mm-hmm. I can see. Like, like for example, here's something that I think is really interesting in Xenosaga One, which is the the Realians, which are a a synthetic race of people who are basically exactly people. They just aren't made of goo and by 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 biological material. They're made of weird plastic that makes them essentially the same as real people. But the game goes to incredible lengths to make sure you know and understand that Realians are not considered people <laughs> in the setting of Xenosaka and that the right person will treat them very poorly. Uh, and so it, that's something that uh, every time I revisit Xenosaka one, I'm like, wow, this is a really cool, interesting idea. Xenosaka two and three have almost nothing to do with reality. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> 
<laughs> I am sorry to say that Damn. is a theme that isn't going to be explored super duper deeply. And you can tell that that was something on the cutting room floor. There's mm. going to be Realian stuff. Like, Realians will come into play yeah. as important figures. Fabronia will be explained to you. Mm-hmm. Fabronia and her sisters, uh, you will be returned to. They will return in the next James Bond film. Uh, but as a, like, ongoing idea about who who is considered a person, who has will, who has consciousness, this is something that went out the window. <laughs> like, you can read about it in the dictionaries as you continue on. Um uh, but in Sarasaka 1, you can feel that idea is oh, three-dimensional. Yeah. It's in there. Um, Stephen, you once threw a Molotov cocktail into PMC's chat uh, by asking me if I considered Cosmos to be a mech. Um, and the reason why I <laughs> reacted the way that I did is because I feel like that conversation cuts to the core of the whole mission here at Mechanations for me. Because um, one of the things that you will interact with in Zenon Saga 2 is a new style of mech uh, called an ES. And the, what differs an ES from an AIGS unit is that, one, they are larger. And two, they are each equipped with a particular kind of computer called an Enema Relic. Anima Relic. Uh, the only ES that doesn't have an Anima Relic in this same way, this isn't completely true, but is sort of true, is the Dina, the ES Dina, uh, which is a combined version of a docking unit and a motorcycle that Cosmos pilots. Now, Cosmos, when you look at where she is in the piling seat of the Dina, kind of acts exactly like the Anima Relic would. Uh, and so what you end up with is, is a mech that is piloted with the brain of a robot and also has the heart of two human pilots within it. And so... If you install a, a robot into a mech with an AI and that it's acting as that AI, where, where at what point, ship of Theseus-wise, does, is, does it cease to be an android and the mech? And if we consider the android a character, that means the mech can be a character. And therefore, there's all sorts of lines that we can draw when it comes to what counts as a mech and if the mechs are characters. So... To me, it's a huge question, and that's essentially why. Because that line, and that's something I think Xenosaga probably is interested in, um, and I and I do think actually that the Dina, now I'm looking at it, it doesn't look like it has an anima relic. But anyway, the reason why that would matter and why Cosmos would act as one will become clear as as PMC you explore further into the Xenosaga series, if you should choose, or rather if your viewer should so choose to watch it. Uh, and now I wonder if that will ever happen again. Now that you've played Saga One on stream, you know, I I wonder, I wonder too. Is I, you know, I guess I feel, I like, feel I, like you got good engagement. Yeah, though. even outside of us, people were enjoying. Yeah, it. no, I, I I think I attract the most, of course, with uh, you know the speedrun content being very unique. Uh, but I am pleasantly surprised by you know when I ask like, hey, do you, do you want me to keep playing Trails games on a stream? People speak up and say yes. Yeah. So you know, I I just got to be confident because. I'm having fun. Yeah, and, and Zenosaga was a lot of fun. Zenosaga episode one. Speaking of trails, there's there there just might be more podcasts here where where Zenosaga is concerned. So we'll go ahead and put that aside for now, uh, because we've got some mobile suit Gundam to discuss. Are you guys ready? Hell yeah! Always. All right. <laughs> 
Where were you before you relocated to Side 7? Do I really have to answer that? Uh, no. On Earth? This is my first time. Huh? Out here in space, I mean. A member of the Earthborn elite? Are you being sarcastic? Can't take a joke, Mr. Bright. Huh. Hmm. So now we've come to Mobile Suit Gundam 0079. Vote to attack. Uh, who? All right. So we've got a little structure here that where it involves... Oh boy, I'm turning off. I'm shutting down. Here we go. Uh, just kidding. Here I am. I'm back. All right, we've got a little structure here where I summarize the episode, and here we go. Slide 7 is on its way to Luna 2, but in the process of recovery, there's a sense that they still aren't safe, and some suggest going on the offensive. Everyone is gathered to vote on the issue, and the votes are overwhelmingly for attack. Amuro will head out in the Gundam along with Ryu and the Core Fighter. Ryu is hungry for action, but Amuro suggests a more tactical approach. The result is total chaos for Char and his forces, but they recover enough to begin a counterattack. Not that one, a different Char's counterattack. Char is a superior pilot to Amuro, but the Gundam is so powerful that no amount of ability can make up for the gap, right now, to both qualities. Char soon realizes the Gundam is keeping him occupied, but not soon enough to prevent the deployment of the gun tank. The white base forces successfully destroy the supply ship, but not the supplies. Gotham, not Gundam, insists on engaging the Gundam in his Zaku-1, but despite his confidence, is no match for the superior suit. Noah calls everyone back, and the white base makes its way to relaxation and safety on Luna 2. Alright, that last line might be a trap, but let's not worry about that right now. Let's not dwell on Luna 2. Yeah, 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 I'm sure that'll all be fine. Um, out the top, uh, what, what, what's the feeling of, of this week's set of episodes before we really get into the, 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 the grimy about talking about the specifics of the plot? Uh, just, just off the top, uh, something that, you know, I've been watching these with my partner and something that, 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 uh, they were, they were sharing with me is how much they appreciated this as a kind of replacement for Star Trek. This has a very Star Trek-y feel to them. Uh, the, the TOS kind of style where... There's like a, a a frontier sort of vibe to it all, uh, uh, and I, I I felt like that was apt. I kind of I get what they're saying. Uh, how did you guys enjoy this week's set of episodes? I was very uh, happy to see what I felt were um, kind of a, a logistical and bureaucratic insights into our two forces. I feel like we still don't quite have motivations, uh, but we get some real looks into. The uh, the sort of like a uh, large picture strategic mindset of both uh, the mm. Zeon and the Federation, and uh, and and it especially prompted me to start comparing that. You know, I know in our history we compared some of the uh, aesthetic designs of you know the uniform stuff like that to to real life military, but now I definitely find myself uh, you know comparing uh, uh, strategic positions to real life militaries and i'm I'm sure as we get to some of the particular situations we could dive into what we were what we thought of i like the relative simplicity and this is not a criticism of the original mobile suit gundam especially compared to some of the other stuff we've watched recently i mean you have cold code yes r2 which just makes no fucking sense half the time and then even giant robo which i love the narrative relies on obfuscation um you know what you know at the beginning changes as you go along and the mystery of the a Bash Charles shrouded in mystery. But here we have like a fucking like good old fashioned war story. And I really like the cat and mouse nature of the chase in the beginning. It's it just works. Like one ship pursuing another, that's all I need. 
You, you know, you got, uh, I don't know, Rathacon, The Enterprise, and The Reliant. My, one of my favorite movies of all time, Master Commander. You got the HMS Surprise and the Acheron. The White Base and the Musai. Like, the no-frills simplicity to it is just great. I like it to sit back and relax. And it's fun to see like a, just a, a plain, old-fashioned war story play out. I feel like, even with Mecha, we're not treated to that enough. No, I think that's true. Uh, on, on that note, on both of your guys' notes, actually, I will say that this set of episodes goes a long way towards addressing the issue I was having with last week's set of episodes, where I was a little concerned about the way that Xeon were postured to be way more outright bad guys than I feel like they should be at this point of the story. And and this week's set of episodes really did a lot correcting that by, by introducing us more to how the Federation actually works. Um... By the way, before we get too far, I wanted to mention that the script for this episode was Yoshihisa Araki, the unit director was Aikichi Kojika, and the animation director was, of course, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who we've talked about before. Now, I wanted to drop this here because unlike some of the other shows we talked about, there is way too much information about Gundam. Mm. And so I might as well drop what we have available to us since we've got <laughs> it. Um and on that note, let's get into some of the more specifics. We see, one of the first things we see is how the uh, uh, white base crew are assisting the, the refugees and they're, you know, giving out supplies. Noah talks to Paolo, who is dying still. Um, I, I, this time, had cause to watch a little bit of the English dub. Um, and the English dub, Paolo is putting a lot of mustard on his dying uh, in a way that it, I was surprised by because normally. Normally, it, there is a lot more, like, vocal, like, uh, what are the words I'm looking for? Not ululation. That's definitely not it. Like, guttural sort of <laughs> noises in, in anime voice acting. In, in, in Japanese anime voice acting, There's there are a lot more willing to kind of go that, <laughs> just make noises to to show effort or or, you know, struggle or what have you. Um, and in the sub, it's total silence as he struggles. To oh, die. Like, huh. like in, in in not the sub in the Japanese dub of it, he's mm. he's really not dying that hard. And in the English dub, he's really dying. He's like, Ugh! I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not an actor. I don't know how hard this is, especially for a, a 79 animation uh, situation. But I was surprised at the the amount he was dying. <laughs> and Noah's like. We're gonna get you some some opium. Don't worry about yeah. it. We're gonna hook you up. It's gonna be good. <laughs> Limit two is just full of opium. Why do you think we brought it into orbit? Uh, we see Frau with the orphan children. Uh, I don't know if we know for a fact that they're orphan children yet, but I know that they're orphan children. The three of them. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we're just gonna go with that right now. Um, then Noah and Sela have a character building scene? Question mark. Um, I mean, it's good because it's Sailor making fun of Noah, and that's always good. That's always good, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because uh, basically Noah is trying to do some, like, kind of small talk, kind of. Uh, and he's like, so where are you from? And she's like, I'm not I'm not telling you that. And Noah's like, oh, well, I'm from Earth. I, I've never been out for, to space before. And Sailor kind of teases him in a way that... I know is reflective of the truth of her character that she is one of these of the elite that she's kind of making mm -hmm. fun of right now kind of um and Noah's just kind of like well, all right <laughs> like, 
I really appreciate how a lot of these situations. I I, I think Bright Noah right now. You have to look at him and realize that he is just. He is desperately trying to find an element to be in somewhere, somehow, and there is no cover. <laughs> no. There is no hiding. No. He's, he, I think that Noah, if, if none of this had happened, he's very much a dude who would have been super happy to have been someone's assistant manager leader guy. Like He, he did not want to be in the spotlight of anything, it seems like. Just just from character vibes. Steven, did you have a feeling about the... I feel like, Steven, you will have very strong feelings about any scene that takes place in an elevator. So I, I wanted to know <laughs> if you had a particular take on this. So my knowledge of the original Gundam is a little murky. Like, I watched the show, but some of the character beats in the background um, have been lost to time for me. So this could be a misread, but number one... This, like we pointed out, surprisingly terse scene between the two of them. And I think it speaks a lot to the social divisions that exist in the setting. Because as I see it, you know, the space dwellers are prejudiced and discriminated against by, you know, the earthlings, the terrestrial dwellers. And, you know, Sale has been hardened to these prejudices as a space dweller. And the way she reacts to Bright, it's, it's beyond resentment at this time. She's lived with this her whole life, even though she does come from some privilege. She's resigned to this reality, which means she can joke about it ironically, and Bright is completely out of his fucking element. I'm going to criticize Bright at some times, but I definitely s- sympathize with his like fish-out-of-waterness at times, or like see myself in Bright at times, just because of how fucking awkward he can be. Yeah, I think you're right to bring up her, her perspective as a space-noid. I, I'm quick to think of her as the princess of a deposed royal family, but that... That's not maybe the way that she's thinking about it, but but that's for me. I, I you know, you don't get to be Char's little sister and not have a little bit of. Uh, but it's fine. We'll we'll get to the whole backstory with with the uh, the the zombies and the the Dacums and and all of that that stuff later. But anyway, uh, Sela makes fun of Noah. And Noah doesn't really deserve it this time. Really, maybe I don't know. <laughs> Later he does, but now I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. He was. I don't. I don't see it. It's fine to make fun of Noah. We were all agreed there. <laughs> um. On on that note, I do want to say, I always appreciate that Mirai is just like a normal ass person. That she was just kind of around, and she was like, "Well, I can. I know how to. I have a. I have a license for this kind of. I can this. drive. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> and like i really imagine that again if this had not happened she would just like because like probably she was licensed for like commercial vehicles of this size so she'd be driving like a space truck you know yeah <laughs> i i know we're gonna get we're gonna have a bit later on that gets into i think it's like an arranged marriage or something for her that she was trying to get away from and so i i forget if her backstory is like that she is she went off to be a space trucker to leave to leave the marriage that she was supposed to be engaged in uh, so I think we'll get more of her, more of her story. She's fun. Mirai's good. I like Mirai. Yeah, I just l- appreciate how very normal she is. This <laughs> is just a regular ass person. Uh, so yeah, I I could see her being a space trucker though. Like that's some heavy metal. Yeah, queen heavy metal shit. queen. I see, like, exactly. Mirai embodying that that spirit. So we cut back to Shar in the Musai, and um, you know how I was complaining last week about how the Zeon are like very evil. And it seems like they're characterizing them very evil. I was like, you know, I should be careful about how I talk about that because, you know, there, there's going to be different information that comes down the line. And then they pivot to the inside of the Musai. Um, and it has this big evil face. 
in the cockpit. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you do you see like if you go to like 4:45 and Char is at the at the at you know the command and you're looking at it and above them above like the viewing port there's a there's like an evil face and I'm like all right <laughs> like, this is okay I know that that right now there are antagonists and right now they have an evil face inside their spaceship but I'm really <laughs> I should leave room in my heart for these characters to be just the other side of this conflict I don't know am I am I am I, am I making crazy talk here guys? well I'll t- I'll tell you, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, communication about the extent to which the Xeon are explicitly evil, certainly the layout and the look, you know, I think the, you know, the the green, the lines of the ships, things like that, you know, we, we could talk about that. The the thing I wanted to get to about specific strategic situations, and this is like, I think a very American perspective, but like, it's one that I have. I experience every time I watch this show. I feel like from my perspective, I can't help but place the um the logistical situation of the Zeons right next to a conflict that American school kil- school children are taught way too much about. When I say taught way too much about, I mean too much about the sequence of battles of the American Civil War because I very much right. in my mind connect Oh, they're you know they they think they're charismatic, you know, charismatic. They're gallant. They have a desire for aristocracy and and you know dressing up, but they are materially limited and have acquired territory from their opponent in order to try and bridge that gap. So in my mind, I'm always sort of comparing you know some of those larger pictures of the of the Confederate. Have you guys ever done that? Has that popped into your either of your minds? I, I bumped on that a little. I didn't bring up the Confederacy in my analysis, but based on the opening narration of uh, the first episode, it's I had the sense that these uh, Zeon had the Federation kind of on the ropes, like they fucking mm-hmm. dropped a space colony on Earth. So I figured they were, you know, they had the Federation cornered in a position of weakness. Not to mention the fact that it's taken eight months to develop a single mobile suit on the Federation's part. But I was a little, well, so I was a little surprised to. S- yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised, though, to see that the Xeon's suffering from supply shortages. And um, I also read a little deeper in that perhaps that's representative of the peacetime conditions that the colon not that I'm exonerating the Xeon here, but that the, the colonies labor under compared to their, you know, earthbound counterparts. But yeah, I see that comparison. I think that's apt to point out. I could be wrong here. Wasn't the implication that they've been kind of overzealous in the warring that they kind of like pushed really hard in in those initial eight months, and now they're kind of in a in a sort of like, well, we can't really go as hard anymore. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? we we, well, we tried yeah, to shock and awe them into into defeat, but you know we weren't able to. I mean, that would be another comparison: is they weren't able to seize Jabro or or DC. If I were to continue my you know comparison to the the Civil War. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, the narrator does mention like heavy casualties on both mm. sides. It just I didn't see that visually represented on screen yet. I think I think also there is a a sort of like uh uh that thing that 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 Lucas was trying to do with the separatists in the prequel trilogy where they're like a they appear to be that sort of like technocracy sort of thing where it's like a a a, a bunch of like sort of rich kid council members mm-hmm. who have big toys that they're all kind of throwing at it, you know, like, like it, that, that's the vibe that I got, which especially with the pomp and the, the evil faces and whatnot. 
But you know that's very like Germanic too, like the bullshit weapons that they tried out at the end of the war to try to reverse the sides, like some kind of tank that's like you yeah. know three blocks long or something like that. I also so, oh oh no, go ahead. I was just going to mention, and we'll have examples of this, especially uh, towards the end of this episode. It is interesting to me. I know a major focus is the use of technology in war that kind of eliminates the sort of gap in in skill it's funny to me to see the zeon complain about it so much when we know as a fact that they had had supremacy through mobile suits you know through the zakus before uh the gundam shows up so that the fact that we haven't seen any zeon be like wow tables got turned on us remember when we used to be the only ones with mobile suits i don't know if that's something that's going to happen but it definitely entered my mind when i was sort of considering and weighing the the technology and war stuff going on we also yeah, and that's something future shows will like rewrite or mm. address again in a different context. We also do know that they were in the first couple episodes. The the guys that that Char is getting orders from were partying, you yes. know, a couple of days ago. They were, you know, like and and when he's talking to him again, he's insistent, like Char, I sent you to Zaku's. Like, get me the secrets or 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 else, you know? Like, what else do you want from me? Which is part of why this whole uh, uh, supply situation is so important for them in this moment. But uh, in this in this next scene uh, where, where Char is receiving his orders, uh, or after Char has received his orders, uh, we're cutting back to Amaro, um, and uh, we're getting a kind of, I think, an interesting reflection of the first episode, where once again Frau Bao has to try and force Amuro into being a social creature of some kind, despite Amuro's best efforts. Do you think when uh, she opened up the the Gundam cockpit, like I, I expected, like a like an explosion of stink waves to be emanating from the cockpit, like as it as the the force of teenage like ooky smell just escapes out of it? Because <laughs> <laughs> again, we are we are introduced to the idea that Amuro doesn't care about himself. He cares about Gundam stuff and not eating and not showering. And it is up to Frau, of course, as, as his uh, girlfriend to to take care of these these unimportant things. Yeah, some of this characterization does really hit home. It reminds me of the scene in Pat Labor when they're just vibing all night in the... You know that you pointed out, Ignis, in the Pat Labor, the movie one discussion with uh, their bunch... They're, they're all in the room. They've been like doing their stuff in the room the whole time it probably reeks to high heaven like there's there's an odor that probably emanates from that room yeah no absolutely i, w- I wish i could provide more details i just can't remember the scene exactly no i know what you're saying like that the like it's a hot summer day and they're they've been clearly working in it the whole time there's a there's yeah. it, it feels palpable is the word we would probably want to use but the other people having a conversation interestingly now that we've we've mentioned mirai so much are mirai and noah um, oh, and I wonder if um, Mirai is supposed to be close to Noah in age. That'd be interesting to me. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember. That's that's a monkey's paw situation, though, when you start Googling no, anime ages. I mean, you know, I, I'm just curious because something that's interesting to me about Noah in this episode is I'm wondering if, and, and this could be a story element later, but it's interesting that this, his first choice here. It is really one of his first command positions here is to make this call, is to decide whether they're going to go straight for Luna 2 or if he's going to send the civilians and a couple of soldiers into further combat because he expects that they're going to be in further combat anyway, right? And and I think it's interesting that his first call here is to put it to a vote uh, because I think if in a different show, and and maybe this will come back even, 
my memory is that it doesn't really in the sense that I'd like it to. But man, this is really this is really kind of a compromising his command right away, right? <laughs> like, like at PMC. I, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen. Did you have thoughts on this as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, PMC. Did you want to go first? I just wanted to say I that, to that, that, that I'm going to get a sign for uh, for Bright Noah's desk that just says the buck does not stop here. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I did some. Re- Oh, go on again. Oh, I will, all I was going to say is that I, I just think it's interesting that that he made this call here. I think it's reflective of his character in an interesting way. But Stephen, if you if you looked into this, I want to hear what you looked into. So I had the same thing in my notes. The first word I wrote down was "interesting." Period, and um, I wondered if this consensus voting is Federation protocol, which I know deep in my heart it's not, or if it's more representative of Bright's personal style of leadership, which most likely it is. I'm not sure if that consistently continues, but in isolation in episode three, I think it speaks to his character. Like, I don't think it's a facade. Like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't want the approval of everyone, irrespective of age or rank. He's bringing in the civilians, which I think, especially if you compare it to the authoritative and top-down method of decision-making employed by Xeon, I think it's rather commendable. And um, it's also really representative of Japanese corporate culture of not only the 70s, but of the 20th century. There was this consensus building procedure called Nemawashi, and that's when executives had to consult with and get the approval of every employee before deciding on a course of action. Um, So if I was the CEO of a corporation, I wanted to add three more parking spots, let's say. Let's make it very domestic. I would theoretically go to every sit-down and conference with every individual who is my employee, and I would ask them if they're cool with this, and I'd ask them, you know, voting yay or nay. Now, of course, there's a power dynamic there that kind of muddies the water, um, but if this were an American war show, I don't think Bright would be calling a vote, and I think it's definitely influenced by that, you know, the cultural currents surrounding it. But also, I think it really speaks to Bright's character. Like, I know he does some shit later on, and he's very, he's very liberal with his slaps and uh, inflicting bodily harm on his, on his subordinates. But there are some commendable things about Bright that I'm going to praise him for, and this is one of them. Yeah, I think interesting. I, I, I think, I think the whole thing is interesting because I think it is a commendable character moment, but it is not a commendable captain military moment. Uh, I think in a in a world especially where he's trying to be instilling in Amaro a a military sense of discipline for him to on his first chance to have a a decisive military decision uh, to pass it off to a bunch of people he may never ever see again I thought was an interesting choice I I, I don't think now I want to be clear I'm not criti- it, could, it 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 could point to the hypocrisy of the Federation. So, so the thing I want to be clear is that, I, in my opinion, this whole thing to vote, I think, has 100% to do with Noah's sense that, as a 19-year-old, people aren't going to listen to him. That, that even if he thinks that attacking is the best way, the best way to get this decision made is to show everyone that they all agree with him as well. I think what, for example, Shar would have done, not as a fascist, but as a captain, would be to say, we're doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm the captain and that's what we do. And I think it's, it's it's interesting that Noah doesn't go this route, especially because he will, this is his only solution to Amaro, which is to, to go total hard-ass military on him in a way that this, like, uh, democratic decision is not at all in line with. And, and again, I want to stress, this is something I would want a military commander to do. I would want the military commander to be like, hey, y'all, would it be cool if I forced us to do a combat situation? I'd be like, please don't. 
<laughs> and I would appreciate that opportunity to do that. But I do think, if from a military perspective, it, it does a bad job of shoring up his, you know, his his command. And, like, obviously right here, he's not expecting to be in command for very much longer, right? Like, his, he's like, okay, we're going to Luna 2. There's going to be other higher people there and and i might not be in this position anymore i don't think i have a position at all the captain's just down so why don't i ask everybody else i think it speaks to his character but i also do think it speaks to his insecurity so anyway uh they do vote to attack uh this is when we start to see i think this is the first time we see amuro in his uh, federation uniform um because he stinks he's smelly and uh, we get a vote. We get a, a quick sort of uh, showing of who votes to stay and and shoot straight for Moon Lunar Two. And I think it's just civilians. Yeah. Like Frau, does Frau vote for for uh, for straight to Lunar Two? I'm trying to skim by it here to see. No, it doesn't look like she. Let's see. She doesn't vote to attack. There's definitely. I remember that she doesn't vote to attack. Um, but she might not vote at all. Uh, uh, but yes, every basically everybody votes to attack, more or less. Can I point something out real quick? Since you mentioned Amuro's Federation uniform, uh, compared to like you have all the Federation officers, there are garbed in their you know uniforms, and then Hayato looks like he just walked off like the docks after a day of hauling fish out of ships, and I love it. There's like a grit to Hayato in comparison, which really made me laugh. Yeah, I mean the thing I think with Hayato is that he has the. Hmm. So 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 PMC recently played Zenosaga One, and there's a character in Zenosaga One who who looks like a child named Junior, um, and and he looks like a child in a way that they are very careful to let you know this is a weird thing. He is not a child; he is a grown ass man or something. Uh, uh, uh. But or maybe he chooses to feel that seem that way. I don't know. Now with um, uh, 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 uh. uh oh gosh, who were we just talking about? Hayato, right? Hayato just looks like a a, a small boy, <laughs> like, and I think Hayato looks like a small boy for the rest of his life, <laughs> and, and I think it's it's you know that's all I can think about when it comes to Hayato, who I like. I want to be clear, Hayato is a dude that makes sense. Uh, he's a dude with good aim, clearly, because uh, he was out there shooting at Char during his speed running uh, uh, thing. Um, but uh, man, I can't. He it makes me laugh every time I see him. <laughs> it's he has a. Uh... Billy Quizboy vibes from Venture Brothers. Yes, 100%. That is 100% what I see when I look at him. Um, I saw also, I think Kai has is flipping a little coin when we see him doing the vote. I don't know what the deal is with that, um, but whatever. It's fine. We'll, we'll meet these characters in more detail later, although we met Kai in episode two, I think. He was getting owned by uh, by Sayla, yep, I think. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's never going to stop. Um, <laughs> Kai getting owned by things will, will never stop. So there, so we're heading out for the first time, and I think this is when we get our first catapult scene with the Gundam. Hell which yeah! Rules. Always love a catapult for launching a mech. Uh, uh, I think we'll see this shot a million times moving forward. Uh, that's cool. We also have a new weapon for the Gundam. We got that uh, that bazooka. I think they just call it over and over again. I, I think it's just called the Gundam bazooka. Is, isn't that right? I think that's right. Sometimes I, 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 I think later on in the Gundam literature, it'll get like hyper affixed to it. Sometimes hyper bazooka. I think you're right. Yeah, that sounds right. That's certainly the case in Journey to Jabra, which you know, of course, is very much closely trying to mimic the the, the TV show upon release in America. 
Uh, so, do we, do we have thoughts on the core fighter? Do either? Do any of us care about the core fighter? It's okay. It's I fine. Guess. You know, it's kind of looks like a. I like its pilot. Mm, Ryu's yeah. nice. Ryu's, I Ryu's love a good Ryu. boy. Nice big boy. He's he's dumb. <laughs> he, he doesn't seem to. <laughs> you know. He's got big Leroy Jenkins energy. He's like, oh, yeah. we're just going to fly right in there, right? I'm right. Like, we're just no. going right in. Stop. It's yeah, like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm like 15 or whatever. In- instead of radioing you, I'm just going to like wave my whole mobile suit arm. Oh, it's speaking of radios, uh, Ryu has his radio off the whole time. Yeah. Which I think is very funny. <laughs> Uh, especially because it seems like it's not on purpose there's like a there's like a hot minute where i'm like okay Ryu's a hothead he doesn't care what anyone has to say about orders so he's turned his his fucking computer off but he shows up at the end of the episode he's like uh i guess my computer was off sorry about that guys (laughs) i i thought it was endearing uh we get to we then see char meeting up with the supply ship uh, uh, that was Gadam, who I mentioned earlier, who is like the leader of the supply ship. He's got a real like um, he's got a real attitude about it too. He's like, well, this was for the sake of the pride of the supply corps, and I was like, all right, dude. Yeah, he he has extreme should have retired by now energy for the whole oh. episode. Oh, for sure. That actually that's perfectly explains a lot what's going on with his character. I would say. Gundam Wing was full of these guys, if you remember, the like the first half of the series, like Bonaparte and um, others whose names, of course, are escaping me at this moment. Basically, everybody who was not in, like the Earth Alliance guys were basically all, yeah. all got dudes who should have retired. We get a, a scene that, that is meant to, we were joking about it with Ryu earlier, but this is, I think, another scene uh, where it's supposed to kind of, I wonder if there was meant to be mystery with Amuro early on. Um, I, I feel like the scene where he's suggesting, like, they, they use the sun, that they're, he's having some tactical thought here. Uh, I wonder if we were meant to question this, like, sense of tactics or whatever, or, like, this this amateur kind of skill that he's he's obtaining piloting the Gundam. I, I don't know. I know this is typical for protagonists, especially of shows in this era, like, that shows had way less explanation for why people were good at piloting giant robots than Gundam did. Um, I mean, Amuro found a a fucking manual at least. So, but I, I wonder, I'd wondered about this scene if this was meant to be planting the seed for something more. I know that it's not, not really not beyond the new type stuff, but, um, it, it was just curious to me that this kind of random, you know, uh, episode one and two in the way that he pilots felt very, like like a a person forced into a machine that they're not really familiar with sort of situation and and this whole idea of like using the sun i don't know maybe if there was a line where he was like i used to play counter-strike and in counter-strike we'd throw <laughs> flashbangs and this is like flashbangs do you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. i know in 79 there wasn't counter-strike i think but you know it's it was interesting to me that he had this thought rather than ryu like You'd think this would be a moment where Ryu could go, Amuro, don't fly just at them. We can use the sun because I'm a soldier and I've learned some things. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm dumb and fat, so <laughs> you need to tell me what's up. I don't know. My read, well, I took I, I put a lot of I guess heavy lifting on the scene with him in the microscope, because that just signified for me that, oh, he's interested in science and I guess empiricism. So 
it makes sense that he might come to these conclusions based on that one scene. I will say about this scene in general, I like that it's not just the Gundam doing the literal and figurative heavy lifting. Like, Amuro brings a lot to the table, which I like. It adds more characteristic to the relationship, or adds more personality to the relationship between Amuro and the Gundam, which not all mecha shows provide, especially not in the 70s. I definitely think it's an open question to what extent the success of Amuro slash Gundam is attributable to one over the other, or, you know, in what percentage, or which, you know, who brought what. Because, uh, you know, and that's, that's even a scene that's explicit in the next episode where it's like, well, it's really the self-learning computer. Everyone's like, well, well I mean, you you did stuff. You did something, you know, and right. I think for you even is the one who says that. Um, and, of course, you know, eventually this develops into new type stuff much, much later on. So, But it's definitely interesting to keep track of it. I, I think the what we're doing here is sort of pointing out all these different signifiers because I think the show is very interested in asking, well, wait a second. Why is he having this success? You know, that is a, a matter of concern. Right. That, that's the main reason I wanted to bring it up. One of the things that, that Gundam is also concerned about is it's very uh, meticulous about showing us why things are occurring certain ways. So the Musai and the supply ship aren't really able to fire back in the way that they'd like to. And they explain to us through one of the ugly guys, who I appreciate. I like the ugly guys. Uh, that uh, they needed to reduce main engine power so they can't bring the main guns back online for a really long time for a battle. Five minutes and 20 seconds is like 600 Dota Eternities. There's no way that's enough time to bring up uh, main cannon weapons. Uh, so what you end up with is a bunch of little little attacks from rain, you know, far away from the Gundam and the core fighter with the intent or the expectation that Char and some other mobile suits will go out to intercept them, which the Gundam will distract while Ryu and the core fighter will get to pick away death by a thousand cuts style. Um, this works pretty well. Uh, it basically allows the white base to deploy, not all the way, not as much as they'd like, uh, but in the meantime, they do basically like, hey, hey, we could throw the gun tank out there, and the gun tank is is well suited to this kind of thing. I I I really like the logic of this whole thing. I, I think that the hecticness of it all, and the way that everyone's kind of like, uh, uh, really trying hard to do their job to the best of their ability. Even characters like Hayato, who's like, uh, how do I contact the bridge again? And he yeah. throws up his, his fucking, you know, how to, I felt that, you know, I've been on those, those job days, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it, it is, it was, it was an interesting, uh, a fight scene, even if the mobile suit stuff, uh, is a lot of the same fight logic that we've been seeing from the last episode where, uh, Despite the Gundam's capability, Char is such a capable pilot that he's not able to be defeated by the Gundam, you know? Um, and he even catches on to the whole, the shenanigans, right? Like, that, what the plan was to keep him occupied. Knowing, you know, everybody, this is the downside of being a, a well-known ace pilot, right? Which is that, you know, speaking of Dota, everybody knows to target you, right? Everybody knows if they take you down or keep you occupied then every, nobody else is going to be as effective, yeah. which is Do- what ends up happening. Double team the star player, and oh, guess what? <laughs> the rest yes. of you are flammable. Right. Precisely such. Uh, uh, I'm trying to... Oh, something that's important, too. I mentioned this earlier. Ryu is is not contact, uh, contactable, um, and the reason that matters is that it's preventing the white base from making good shots on the Musai and the supply ship, which they make up for later by deploying the gun tank. 
right? No. Gun... Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah the gun, gun tech. tech. Gun yes. Tech. Okay. Yep, 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 You're right. Yep. I want to pour one. There's a scene. Oh, who are you pouring out? I'm pouring out one out for the Zaku one, who I feel is an unsung hero. I mean, obviously, got him more like got him. Uh, you know, he had coming. <laughs> hey! uh, he, he's... I, ke- I kept making that joke yeah. to no and, one and... as I watched this episode. <laughs> but I mean, you know, he, he he lives the classical example of you know the the veteran soldier who does not understand the gap in technology, which Shara has now committed, and Shara you know tries to save him from from his mistake. Uh, but you know, definitely another classical example of like Azaku one, especially no matter how good you are. It's not going to work. Right. Can I shit on the Zaku 1 for oh, a minute? Come oh, on, no. Man. Oh, no. What does Zaku 1 right. do to you? Here's the thing I've been living with the Zaku 2 for how old am I? 32 years. 32 years, basically. I've been living with the Zaku 2. So for me, the Zaku 2 is foundational. It might as well be the Zaku 1. And because it's so foundational, like any deviation from the norm, including the Zaku 3 and like the ancillary Zaku 4, are kind of off-putting to me, which I know isn't fair, but it's just like I understand it as like a metaphorical, uh, more like a metaphorical conceit here about like the gap in technology, the gap in perspective between Char and the old, the old Gotham. Um, but it just looks so emaciated, like skeletal, that it's, it's like off-putting. Like, every time I see the Zaku one, I, I think like, Dance Macabre is playing and like they're doing a little skeleton dance. It just, I don't know, it takes me out. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a Zaku stan, a Zaku 2 stan through and through. I think for me, the thing I really like, and I, and I, I think we've discussed before, or I mentioned before, that eventually it's explained that the, you know, the origin of Zaku was in, in uh, construction and labor, uh, and literally like labor is like pat labor. Go ahead. That I do like. Yeah. Like the idea that we had these, ma- these, these uh, mobile suits performing manual labor, and then they were twisted into instruments of war. That's cool. Zaku 2 being the like. martial version of Zaku 1, I think, is pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. That I'll agree with. Yeah. I'm, I will, I will, I'm going to break from you here, Steven Hero, because I, I appreciate how naked the Zaku 1s look. I, I'm generally with you in that um, I kind of find the Xeon mobile suits to all be kind of like uh, and this is why I've never, they've never really been my favorite, even some of the more famous ones, because they're all kind of, um, it's like Zaku 2, fucked up Zaku 2, uh, Zaku 2 with black and purple colors, Zaku 2 with blue colors and some spikies, like, they all feel like Zaku's to me, <laughs> like, even, like, the Doms, right, or, or, you know, some of the more fancy goofs or what have you, they're all just kind of fucked up. <laughs> Zaku's to me. So so here, when we see like a naked Zaku, I understand how that's the Zaku one, right? There's a visual here that makes it clear this is a Zaku one. I kind of like its military skirt. I like how it's like naked. I, I think that the way that the um the uh shoulder checks appear to be the main method of attack for Zaku ones. It suggests that, like, that one spiky shoulder on the Zaku 2 is, like, a relic of that. That that's just, like, a, like, oh, this was the primary way that unarmed Zaku did combat. So we're, of course, going to armor up that one shoulder. I kind of like the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, like, visual legacy of that? Does that make sense? Um... But, you know, I get what you're saying. Like, I understand. Like, it's clearly a, an inferior unit. Like, they successfully designed something that's that's clearly not for fighting, right? 
I do like how we don't get like obnoxious narration like Shar looking to one of his lieutenants. You know what that is? That's the Zaku One. That's a relic from the ancient past. Let me give you a little two-minute-long explanation about it. I'm glad that we can fill in those blanks without unnecessary exposition. Shar is mostly mad about that supply ship being old, which is really funny to me. Like he's like that that wreck of a ship. <laughs> We also um, we learn about uh, two two new boys. We got Matthew and Fix. That's a we clone got... trooper name. All right, <laughs> Fix. Get, that's a clone. Get that boy out of here. Yeah, he's in the wrong setting. Um, got him is is dead. We we got him, boys. Um, Ladies and gentlemen. We got yeah, him. we got him. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, nobody. I mean, you could tell what Tomino's doing here. Like he, him, and the writers always make sure that characters have to vocalize the names of all the cannon fodder, just so we know, like the body count, like the war is hell body count. That's all I have to say about that. But you know, they're very cognizant of like saying all the names. Well, you know, often the only thing I was going to say, we're wrapping up our our first episode discussion here. The only thing really I was going to say was nobody's happy about this. Obviously, Char. Is is mad that he they lost his supply ship, if not the supplies, and that they they're losing over and over again now to you know skittish uh, opponents who with amateurish tactics. Like and he's trying to figure out what's up with that. Like uh, you know, there's a mix of uh, you know tactical inferiority and technological superiority here that's not adding up for him. And, uh, you know, despite being victorious, it doesn't seem like Noah is going to give Amaro any, you know, sort of, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, uh, appeasement for that. Uh, he's still got some critiques for him in a way that I think, you know, from a military discipline point of view, I think makes sense. But is going to to drive a sort of wedge between Noah and Amaro here. Uh do you guys feel like there's anything else we should hit on when it comes to vote to attack before we move on? I got I got one thing. I just wanted to applaud a music cue. I, the there's a limited number of tracks for a TV show and I find the way that Gundam deploys them to be really really good. Uh there is one track, I forget the name of it. It's kind of like a like the the horror stalker killer track that it plays uh and in this instance it plays when the Gundam appears from the sun ready to stalk and kill the Zaku one and seeing that music deployed with the Gundam as the monster is very compelling. Cause of course we're going to get it a lot when Xeon forces are, are the monster, but seeing it deployed that way, I, I think it's great. I really enjoyed it. I had one scene I wanted to highlight too. It's the last scene of the episode. I think it's such a smart scene because we're, f- so you have the background and the foreground in the foreground. We have Amuro. He's sipping some kind of fruit juice he got from Frau or someone else. I think it was Frau and the kids dropping it off. And in the background, we have the, com- the just the the rather domestic comings and goings of the bridge. And behind Amuro, in the background, um, one of the subordinates announces about the minefield. And it seems visually that this information is secondary, like the focus should be on Amuro. But the fact that it's mentioned here is so crucial um, because it highlights how war is ingrained into the fabric of everyday life. Um, there's no se- there's no separating line anymore between war and peace, if there ever was one. It reminds me, in some respects, PMC, um, noted Sopranos fan, of the end of The Sopranos. Um, there's a read of that ending where whether or not Tony dies, it doesn't matter, because Tony's always going to be living on the knife's edge of danger no matter what. And there's um, a, like a quotidian nature to that, like a domestic, everyday nature to that, highlighting like just he's never going to escape that, and they're never going to escape war, and those boundaries are blurred. That, I think, is just so smart. 
and really separates Gundam from some of its contemporary peers at the time. I do think it's fun to end on the note that Amuro thinks that he's going to punch Noah one day. I think that's a fun note to end on. Um, And we also have Haro doing doing Haro's thing. Good job, Amuro. Good job, Amuro. You know, which is fun. Uh, We're here for uh, for Haro. Uh, but yeah, though I, that pretty much puts an end on this episode. Uh, we've got another one coming for you real quick. But soon, or, but first, rather, uh, we've got something coming over the horizon. And of course, it can't be a white castle or a white base. This time it appears to be... I, I, I don't know. Let's go check it out. Let's find <laughs> out. <laughs> Retreat! Amaro! Retreat! Destroy the supply ship! Retreat now! Uh, but... You don't have any weapons left, do you? Shara's gonna rip you into a million pieces! Oh yeah, right! Got it! That Shar? What kind of... What kind of man is he? Take me back to Luna 2. Alright. Alright, well, hold on. I don't know, because you might want to escape Luna 2... Uh, so about that relaxation and safety, yeah, it turns out that the Commandant, uh, Joaquin, Joaquin, is not really interested in taking on refugees and a hotspot target like they already are. He has all the respect and time in the world from the military chain of command and procedure, so Paolo gets a lot of care and attention. Meanwhile, certain personnel and civilians, basically the named characters minus Frau, will be detained for using and exposing top-secret military tech. Bright tries to insist that they are very much still in the line of fire, but Joaquin is like, there's absolutely no way Char is going to attack this base. Meanwhile, Char announces he is about to attack that base, all but saying anyone who wouldn't expect this is a scrub to be disrespected. Pause for effect. The attack allows the imprisoned white base crew to break free, while Joaquin's vessel, the Magellan, becomes trapped due to explosives placed by Char and his crew. Joaquin attempts to stop the white base crew from deploying against Char, and it takes Paolo talking him down to relent. Amuro and Ryu engage Char and his men while Amuro is doing better, or, you know, the Gundam self-learning computer is improving. He can't make up for Char's abilities still. Thanks to the destroyed Magellan, Amuro and the White Base crew are able to defeat the two Zakus supplied to Shar. Shar escapes, and Bright informs the captain that they won the fight, but Paolo has succumbed to his wounds. They have a pre-Wrath of Khan funeral for him as Amuro watches an object blown out into space. For some reason, it makes him think of his father. <laughs> just, just similarities, you know, just pops... Comes right up to the front something, of the mind. Something made him think of his dad. I don't know what. No idea why. <laughs> all right. All right. So last week I complained. I was I was very, I guess complain isn't the way I'd, I should put it. I I astutely uh, observed <laughs> that uh, that the show um, had the unfortunate position of the, the Xeon soldiers appearing to be the the bad bad guys that they're they're there to cause misery and suffering and woe to to our poor innocent civilian heroes at, with no context involved whatsoever uh uh and i was a little bit worried about that moving forward hoping that things would get a little bit more uh, uh textured a little bit more interesting a little bit more nuanced and and these sets of episodes are do a lot to that i think uh by the way I wanted to mention, since we are here, 
that these episodes, this episode was written by, the script was written by Yu Yamamoto, uh, the unit director was Shinya Sadamitsu, and the animation director was Kazuo Tomizawa uh, for this episode, episode four. But yeah, this one does a lot towards addressing my concerns because the Federation officers that we interact with in this one are very unreasonable and super shitty to our heroes in a way that feels uh, not unrealistic. Uh, it feels like oh, a PMC. No, do you have a thought I, well, on that? I was gonna say like so. You, I, I was about to say you. So let me let me make sure I'm not putting words in your mouth because you said that the Federation. Uh, that the the officers that they encounter in Luna Two are uh, coming across as unreasonable, but their behavior is also not unrealistic. Right, right. I think that's correct. Okay, and so, but I, I think that's exactly right because I, I think this uh, this episode goes a, a long way to you know to ask the question you know, when it comes to this uh, element of you know the young hero gets the the powerful secret weapon. Yeah, there's definitely a component of wait, why are we giving our most powerful weapon to this novice? You know, there's always we can, you know, whatever the, the particular flavor is, you you can throw the questions in accordingly. And you know, the answer here at this point in the show from uh Wakane and, you know, his chain of command is well, of course this doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, eventually we get we get the voice of uh, you know the the authority voice, uh, Paolo, His last words are like, "Actually, just go with it." You know, by the end of the episode. But certainly, I think this is kind of I I I like that this happens. The arrest feels heavy handed. Like if I if I were to be like, oh well, maybe just a debriefing or something. You know, like you gotta document what they found out when they're because to me that's the most important thing. These are your weapons of war. You want to know about how they worked because you got a war to run, um, but maybe that's because they're on a frontline base. They're in Luna Two, and and they don't have time for that. It's like throw them in the brig. Don't worry about it. Um, it's definitely interesting the push and pull of Wakane's response because certainly, you know the the realism is yeah we want our special weapons back, uh, but also like how do you deal with the people here? And of course the answer is the bureaucracy isn't well equipped to deal with the people. A lot of good things said. I, I I really liked this episode. I thought it was a really overall smart smart episode, like um, Ignis pointed out, like m- providing some necessary and much appreciated nuance. So the first thing I noticed that Tomino's every action has an equal or opposite reaction attitudes on full display here. Like actions have consequences for better or worse, and like unlike some super robot show predecessors, here instead of giving the protagonist a clear road to victory. Um, it mires, Ignis is giving me a face, hold on, I'll address the face in a second. It mires its protagonist in bureaucratic red tape. It, the, the protagonists are arrested. I, he's not channeling the inner, like, inner power of his heart to, like, vanquish all his foes is what I'm trying to say. Like, actions have consequences, and we see those actions play out. So, so I thought you were referring to previous Super Robot shows we had done, not, not preceding no, 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 shows no, no, no. to Gundam itself. No, okay, I understand what you're saying. Okay, no, no, no. I just mean contemporary shows. No, I, I, and and th- I agree. That's all I was going to say. I completely agree. I take back my face. <laughs> and uh, secondly, this is like the first, the really, the first hint that the Federation may not be without sin. And this is something I think Tomino returns to again and again, even though he might not be consistent throughout his entire career. Like power structures and political institutions are susceptible to corruption and compromises. And this cyclical degeneration, which we see in Zeta Gundam, 
And my knowledge of Double Zeta and Victory Gundam is more hazy, but I think we see that continue, at least to some degree, is here. Um, I think it's one of his primary concerns as an artist, because you have these power structures, and it's more complicated than necessarily good versus bad guys. We see the quote-unquote good guys also compromised as well. And I, I like that nuance, even though he might not always stick the landing when it comes to handling his more fascistic characters. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably why Joaquin. Do you guys? How do you guys feel about my pronunciation of that? What, what's the? What's the? What are we? What are you guys feeling? I definitely found myself wondering if this was a situation where you know, because the Federation says be international, is this supposed to be Joaquin like Joaquin Phoenix? You know, is this, that's how it's pronounced in the dub? Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Like that. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't sure because I know sometimes you just get this like weird phonetic gobbledygook. Um, I'm looking at you, uh, the dub of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, you know, <laughs> for the weird. Well, ACD. It's not ACDC. It's it's Essie It's Essie Yes, please. No, they've continued this. Um, uh, I know someone who's reading through uh, the English translation of Part uh, Four right now, and uh, Part Four's antagonist is a uh, a David Bowie lookalike character named uh, uh, Kira or Kiga, really, um, Yoshikiga, and uh, he's uh, got a stand who's called uh, Killer Queen, you know, as a reference to the Queen song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in the manga, the the English translation manga, the 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 stand is known as Deadly Queen. Uh, and yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And that reaction is, is, you know, this is kind of, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to share this take right here necessarily. I'm going to keep my mouth shut about it. Um, but yes, uh, we, we, we have here, uh, our introduction to Commandant Joaquin, who we've heard about a couple times, right? We heard about them in episode two. We heard about him in episode three and here he is. And I think what's interesting about Joaquin is that I think we're not supposed to like him. But I don't think he's supposed to be, like, evil or corrupt, necessarily. It seems like he is, like, an alternate reality version of Noah. Oh, yeah. Who is completely married to the the, the letter of the law and not the spirit. Uh, and is deploying that 100% despite everything in front of him, right? Uh, you know, these guys have just been in an attack against... Zeon forces they've barely escaped with their lives and he is really trying to play this by the books in a way that will does and absolutely will blow up in his face you know literally <laughs> but I don't think we're meant to hate him right I think this is meant to be a a a character who who later the the story will see fit to show as a like noble individual even if everything here is is slowing things down is against what we would want from as the audience right i don't know how i feel about that i think it would have been fine if he was a shithead do you know what i mean if he was just all now just like completely unreasonable like fuck you the little kid's not gonna get to drive the gundam i'll drive the Gundam. do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i think i would have been more into that but that's fine I think I I like this because, well, here's what I'll here's what I'll say. It, it doesn't. It's not that I I feel a need to make um, uh, Joaquin like def- defendable or or uh, sympathetic. It's I think for the audience and understanding how human beings can fall into this position. You know, as you just said, this is you know Bright Noah in ten years. 
uh, you know, how they fall in the position, how they maintain that position of supporting power above them. Like, that's really right. what it's about. And it's not because they're an evil person. They're they're doing these things for the be- what they perceive as the benefit of the Federation of the of Military Chain Command. And they're not really a bad person. It's just that, like, well, this is the job, and I'm dedicated to my job, and I'm going to do this. And the, once he's kind of, like, let off the hook at the end of the episode, you know, he's like, wow, man, this sure sucks, doesn't it? And it feels like... <laughs> Now you say this? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, this is kind of where I get frustrated, right? Is because I I feel like the character uh ends up acting a certain way that the the plot of the episode allows him to act which doesn't feel organic to the character he is. It it felt like like now we've reached this point in the episode so he's allowed to be more sympathetic than than I thought the character was building towards. And in a way that I I just didn't feel like I felt like if he was just like a a, a conceited jerk, which is what they were flexing at us at first, that I that would have been more effective, I think. I think that ultimately they they get across what they mean to get across, which is what we've discussed about the Federation and how it's more flawed than the lack of context, the absolute zero amount of context in episodes one, two, and three would give you, right? But yeah, I was thinking about how, you know, uh, this setup is, it'd be one thing if we were shown someone who's bullying a child, seemingly completely unprompted, you'd be like, wow, that's so wrong. But if you learn that that child is a Nazi supporter, you might be like, well, maybe that child could be pantsed once or twice, (laughs) you know what I mean? And again, I'm not saying that the Xeon are children, or that the Federation are Nazi sympathizers, yet. But... You know, this is just something I was considering when it comes to showing us the story, right? And this is a good step towards balancing out those scales of this conflict anyway. Uh, I like the scene where Joaquin Bright's like, hang on, you shouldn't underestimate Shar, the Red Comet. He is a great soldier. And Joaquin's like, I know that, idiot. And that's why he wouldn't be an idiot and attack the space. That seems stupid. And like, Gundam, to its credit like, immediately cuts to the Musai. And Shar is like, wow, uh, technology's great because we're right outside their fucking base and they don't know we're here. We're back to the days of visual battle because of Minofsky particles. And we're definitely going to attack that base, though, because he thinks that I think that he's a good uh, uh, strategist, but I know he's a bad one who will not expect me coming. Because uh, a great strategist would absolutely expect me coming. He more or less calls him total shit uh, in a way that um, I'm not sure if the dub is quite as 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 elegant. You know, there's a, definitely a response line uh, where he's basically like, "No, you're he's he's like mediocre." <laughs> you know, some only someone mediocre would say something like this. I thought that's so brutal in the writing. I hope there's more <laughs> brutality like that. Um. Were there were there any bits like this? Oh God, I, I I the the face is so evil. They cut again to the Musai's like like deck, and it there's there's an ever even more pronounced evil skull face up here. Like like look here it is. What what the fuck? Do <laughs> like, you like 
I don't know. Have we talked about the Musai at length? Do you feel like the Musai is very, uh, it, it has very big, like, insect vibes to me because of the coloring. You know, it's got the, oh God, what's the, what's the Space Ghost Coast to Coast? Zorak? Zorak? Zorak, yes. Zorak. Yeah. Yes. Kind of, you know, that's what Zorak would fly around in. <laughs> Blunk. Blunk. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think it's got, for some reason, the way that the Musai is set up, I've always felt like the, they're not nacelles, but they look like Star Trek nacelles mm-hmm. down there. Um, they're like big pants. That's always the, when I watched it, <laughs> when how I watched would, it. How would a Musai wear pants? Would it? <laughs> <laughs> when I watched it as a youngster, that's kind of the, the vibe I got. It was like, oh, there's like the legs. It's got big pants on. <laughs> And they're like dragging across the space floor. Um. <laughs> Thank you. I'll never be able to unsee that. Now. I mean, you know, that's that's just I'm just telling it like I saw it. Um. So the 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 white base crew have been detained thus far. Um. And uh, we've got the 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 boys in one one room with uh, with some food available to them, and the the girls in another. Uh, and we got some time for for some exposition intermixed with Shar and his team uh, infiltrating the base. Uh, you know, Shar is able to detect their uh, Charlie's Angels laser grid defense. Uh, this is a um, Shar is playing Goldeneye. Uh, he's got some uh, remote mines that he's planting all over the facility. Uh, uh, you know, he's planting a couple in uh, the the bathroom. Uh, he's planting a couple in that generator room. Uh, you know that one. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a spot right by the door you can plant them by. Uh, you know he's hitting all the b- best spots where people are going to be checking for you know other people to slap and or for other proximity mines to pick up. Or I'm sorry, remote mines to pick up. Uh, everyone, everyone who listens to our podcast, I'm sure will know exactly what I'm talking about. Or our ancient age is probably right there. No, yeah, I think, I think it's it. right there. Yeah, yeah, I think it's right there. <laughs> um, but we also get a conversation about the Gundam. We finally, someone asks, I think it's Kai, asks, what's the big deal about the Gundam? And Amuro <laughs> turns to him and for... Jer- J- imagine it, Jerry Seinfeld. What's um, the big deal with the Gundam? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Amuro turns to him, his face changes into general septums, and he says, it's made out of Gundanium alloy. No, he doesn't say that, because Gundanium alloy doesn't exist. Uh, he explains that the Gundam has a, a complicated self-learning computer, which is downloading all the data from every battle it's in and basically improving as it goes. I, uh, whatever. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm not, I don't mean to nitpick this as a, like, I would be fine with this most of the time. I am fine with it. It's fine. Um, I, I think the thing is, though, and, and Ryu kind of says this, and PMC, you, you mentioned this last in our last discussion, it doesn't completely answer Kai's question, really. Like that's fine. My my computer can download all the data from <laughs> from the 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 battles with the the Xeon. I'm not sure that would make it good for combat necessarily. Like I know I get it that that for the purposes of the show that is the answer, right? That it is gaining combat data, and this will lead into you know eventually new type stuff and how those systems would interact with the new types. Mm-hmm. But um. I thought it was interesting that this was the answer that Amuro has for them right now. I know this isn't this isn't that deep. I get that. I, I just I think it's interesting again that that this doesn't completely answer the question. It does muddy the water a little bit when Ryu is like, no, 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 no. You're you're too humble, Amuro. Um, did you guys have any more thoughts about this scene? 
Yeah, I think the computer thing is interesting because, as you said, you know, eventually we we get to new type as sort of I think the the defining answer for success. But I the one thing I wanted to comment upon is how this is one of those things that I think it's picked up by future Gundam properties more effectively. There is a short list of things that I would say maybe were more interesting in Gundam Wing than UC Gundam. Uh, but the Zero System might be one of them. Uh, you know, I, I, not, not that the Zero System really lives up to its full potential, but uh, a lot of the early concepts of the Zero System are very interesting. And the other one I would point out as to one I am aware of, but not have explored yet, is it is my hope to one day play more of the Blue Destiny side story games. And I know that a rogue computer system called the Exam System in a Gundam is important to those. Interesting. Um, and so I would definitely I don't know it's I don't know if it's out there but like the the universe of Gundams with rogue computer systems uh, seems like a rich uh, mine uh, to dig through uh, and so I definitely you know and, and it starts here right it starts here with the thought of Gundam self learning computer that totally comes into play with that uh, Cosmos question that Stephen was asking me earlier um, but this is the moment when Char uh, Char's whole uh, secret mission comes into to fruition yeah sure bars uh, and and the uh the remote minds are have been remoted and uh power has been lost so that all of our boys can escape well all our boys go grab some of the girls yeah. and then continue to escape just as soon as bright realizes how the door works yeah bright <laughs> needed to be reminded how doors work you know i think it's classic that he spent a couple of minutes trying to bust it open and then he was like oh it's not locked uh, oh oh <laughs> Side to side. Hey, hey, my boy Bright's going to redeem himself at the end, though. Uh, all right. All right. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, they're they're um, fighting their way through. Uh, Frau is currently, uh, uh, you know, talking to some of the military guards, wondering why they're not being evacuated during this attack. Extremely fair question. Um, uh, this allows uh, uh, Kika to distract the, the guards so that uh, PMC... I would describe what occurs here as uh, what would you say? Like uh, this is Amro and Noah doing a doing a, like a tiger knee, right? They're they're just yeah. doing a tiger knee down this hallway. I definitely feel like they did like uh, like an Ender's Game, the gate is down, dive kick sort of thing because <laughs> it's low gravity. They're doing it down the whole hallway. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't know how they get so much speed, but God bless them, they knock out both soldiers, I suppose. Right. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I feel like really what this is uh, in a what this is is the beginning of my my theory that that Bright Noah uh, is a master of Muay Thai uh, mm. and was trained by Sagat himself because <laughs> uh, uh, this is a this is a, oh, a, yeah. a frame perfect tiger knee. Yeah. Uh, someone should. Uh, I'm going to put the uh, the hurt boxes on here. Show, show me your moves. For, yeah, exactly. Uh, so he knocked. They're they're ready. They they knocked out these guards. Uh, they're gonna they're uh, free themselves in the white base. Uh, but it's a little too bad because even if they were able to do that, Shar has positioned his explosives in in a cute enough way where the the hilariously named Magellan uh, completely blocks the the exit to 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 outer space. Uh, I thought this was really clever. This was not something that you know. I, I think it's so hacky when you when you say like, oh, I love when science fiction and space stuff takes advantage of of its environments and settings, and you know, it's that thing where uh, something in space will go like in the z axis rather than just the x and y, and people go, 
whoa, you know, this is really enough for some people. I know for a lot of people, I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking any of that. That's fine if that's the sort of thing that excites you. Uh, but I, I, I thought this was clever of Char to, to do this to completely basically shut them down. I, I you know, the the uh, the solution is pretty simple, but uh, I, and, and you know, it ends up working out for them, but not in a way that, uh, you know, was uh, uh, completely outrageous. I do want to say before we move past him, uh, we do have an all time best um, uh, 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 auxiliary guy, I would say. Uh, because when Shar begins his attack, uh, Joaquin is with a couple of his commanding officers, uh, and one of them observes, like, "Oh man, I, I guess I guess Bright was correct." And Joaquin gives him a look, and <laughs> and the dude's reaction is classic, it, it, amazing, beautiful. He he kind of like he he kind of gestures towards his mouth. He's like, "Oh shit, I shouldn't have said anything." Like he, the look on his face yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's, it's just good. <laughs> this show has a lot of incidental good faces. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I will collect some of these and just put them onto the, uh, the pot, the, uh, the, the Twitter somehow. Not somehow. I know how that works. Um, but yes. <laughs> Tweets, so, how do they work? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Uh, the Magellan is trapped. Uh, the white base are, the crew are scrambling to get unlocked. Uh, uh, and as they're doing that, there's this hilarious scene of, of Joaquin in the, like, space scooter or whatever, and he's looking back and he's like, wait, (laughs) wait, who's in the white base right now? Wait a second. (laughs) So he shows up and he's still trying to, like, military rules them. He really, he's like, hey, that's against the rules, you guys. And, like, that's true. Yeah. But there's this moment here where he's about to be like like showed up by Noah, who is like, "Hey, I I'm gonna I'll I'll take responsibility. I'll be court martial. I'm cool with that." Um, and Mariah calls in and is like, "All right, can everyone everyone shut up? Everyone shut up right now. Like, listen, I know that Joaquin, you're big on these military rules." But all these civilians shouldn't have to suffer the fate that that the soldiers would suffer if following these military rules. Which, you know, sure, Mirai, I don't don't completely love that logic, but I'm into where you're going with it. So she's got um, Master Asia on the phone. Master Asia from G Gundam. And Master Asia, who has saved his his beard and mustache, has called to say, Hey, uh, you should stop doing this. Uh, you don't understand uh, that, you know, the cer- special circumstances force these civilians into the situation. They're essentially amateurs. But what that means is that you should ap- support them all that you can for their fight. Because they're basically experts compared to the rest of us by now. Which is like, sure. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, sure enough. Um, I-, I love this frame of Paolo, who I'm referring to here. But but mostly because, like I said, the the faces in this particular episode are very good, and and I really felt strongly that he looked exactly like Master Asia on his deathbed here. Um, and, but of course, if it was Master Asia, he he would never die in such a way. Uh, his he would he would be much more badass, I'm sure. Um, that's a spoiler, I guess. Paolo hasn't died yet. I do have one thing to say about Paolo's, um, I guess, final words here. 
Um, I think he makes a good point, all things considered, but I think it's telling that his reasoning lacks the empathy of Mirai's argument. Like, I, I know, he's trying to convince Joaquin, who only sees things through a very military-minded lens, but I think it also says a lot about his character. Like, with age and rank comes the erosion of ideals, and we'll see that later on with Bright in future series, how he loses some of these ideals um, that he had when he was younger. And again, I think that is a smart choice, whether intentionally or not. Yeah, I think another problematic part with um, with what uh, Palo does here is that you know this may seem um, like uh, empathetic in the way that it acknowledges the value that the now white based crew provides that they do have value because they do they have deployed these weapons and won battles, uh, but that also you know will quickly transition into I think an exploitative mindset where it's like well. They're here now. They're helping us. Keep going at it, kids. Uh, you know, something that they never really asked for. Yeah, there's a scene earlier on with Frau and the soldiers. And Frau, you know, we brought this up before, but she says, the Zeons have begun their attack, so why haven't you evacuated us to a safer location? The soldier simply replies very rotely, we have no orders from the commandant. And, like, I don't think the Federation higher-ups, most of them at least, view the civilians with malicious intent. But they value military supremacy above all else, even at the cost of their lives. And I, I don't think this indifference is just as damning, but I think it is damning. And I think, again, that's worthy to note. Right. I mean, we've discussed the the uh, Japanese military that exists when we were talking about Pat Labor, and especially Pat Labor 2. And we talked a lot about how there are attitudes that are depicted within storytelling that shows how, at least in the imagination of these stories, that there's a feeling that military sees civilians as separate from them. It is fair to say. I'm not even saying specifically the Japanese military. I'm saying that militaries in fiction, right? It sees a, a civilian population as a separate pool of, whether that's resources or units or what have you, not a the same thing necessarily. Now, I'm not trying to say that all who serve and all soldiers or what have you dehumanize, you know, civilians to this degree. I'm saying that this is a theme when it comes to, or or let's call it an anxiety when it comes to stories featuring soldiers is is the fear that that the soldiers that serve the civilian populations will see themselves as a separate entity altogether, right? And that necessary empathy will disappear in the course of their service or what have you. Yeah, Hannah Arendt, a 20th century philosopher, uh, wrote similar things in her Banality of Evil, like after the war, World War II I'm talking about. Many like low-ranking G- German soldiers just said simply, I, you know, what I did was law-abiding. I was just following the rules, following orders. And that eventual, you know, desensitization to the world around them is interesting to explore alongside other fictional works, too. So... Now that the charges have gone off, Char, Matthew, and Fix are going to attack with the two uh, additional Zakus that were left by the supply ship, uh, and also Char has got himself a heat axe, uh, I assume from the supply ship. uh, Amuro and Ryu are able to deploy, so they're able to fight them off. Uh, Ryu will take on the two Zakus while uh, Amuro fights Char. Um, Amuro, not really able to make much of a... It's a lot of the same stuff. (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, Char's just got a heat axe this time. Uh, and even then, uh, uh, Amuro is able to take out the, you know, Char's kind of deploying this fun, 
Uh, he's going to distract you in melee while someone in range is going to try and pick you pick you apart. Uh, but um, uh, Amuro kind of puts that to bed with a cool dual-wieldy move that he does, where he does a kind of cloth-handed back, back sort of attack on either Matthew or Fix. I'm not sure. But uh, but uh, it doesn't matter because this guy doesn't quite get it as bad as the other guy, because uh, 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 the other guy uh, they they're able to they decide to use the white base to destroy the Magellan, uh, and uh, when they they do this by uh, exploding its thermonuclear reactor, uh, and which causes a massive explosion, which thankfully doesn't just erupt the whole asteroid or whatever, it just is sort of channeled out of the uh, the the launch bay. Uh, and unfortunately, either Matthew or Fix were in the uh, were in the explosion, and the animation is uh, 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 <laughs> it's uh, visceral, I guess is yeah, the way I put no, it. Yeah, no, it definitely brought me back to like uh, uh, Cell at the end of Cell Saga. <laughs> yeah, it, it right it's down just, to the last atom. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of crumpled into a like a fist size like like a piece of paper. Like that's it, you know. <laughs> like it's it's some brutal stuff. Uh, Char has kind of had enough of this, and he's sort of like, uh, uh, hey, look over there! And he chucks the, uh, the heat axe over Amaro and bails, uh, which is a cool move. Um, something that's interesting is the way that the dub characterizes Amaro at this point. Um, in the last episode, there is an exchange where Amaro has a chance to chase after Char, and Bright is trying to explain, you used all your fucking ammo, didn't you? You, you shouldn't stick around um and it's interesting because the dub and i get i i get why this happens because you got a lip flap you gotta match it you've got to do something and in the dub the way that they choose amuro has this moment where he goes like oh yeah like like he forgot that he ran out of ammo and the in the sub the the japanese uh, uh voice performance is not that I think it's interesting to make that choice, and I don't think it's wrong per se mm-hmm. to kind of paint Amuro, especially at this stage, as as like early on in his uh, training or or ability or what have you. Um, but it's funny to make that addition that's not really in the original script, not in a like oh they changed something sort of way, because I think that's in line. I oh, think yeah. that is in yeah. line. But it's 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 definitely kind of like oh Amaro's kind of a ditz <laughs> in a way that I don't know if the we've we've reached that point yet in in to say that his character is that way. Um, so and here he has a kind of different thing that he says. I can't remember specifically. I I thought I had it noted down, but I do not. He has a kind of different thing he says when Shar is coming away here. I really like though how in the uh, the Japanese performance he says Shah. You know, I, I really like the the way that that's uh, that happens in the uh, the Japanese performance. Um, we cut back to Joaquin, who is like, "Yes, we totally won! I can't wait to tell the captain." Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and so we've got a we've got a, a little space funeral uh, where um, you know Joaquin kind of reflects on how you know. Uh, the war is bad because uh, it causes old, knowledgeable people to die before they can give us their knowledge. Uh, and everyone is sad about Paolo in a way that, like, I don't know. Sayla, did you know this dude? <laughs> like, I mean, it's sad when someone dies. I'm not going to be a, a stinky poo man about it. But, but you know, I'm not sure if Sayla was, like, familiar. Maybe she was. Maybe I'll learn in the next episode. I'll be. I'll feel like a real asshole. <laughs> 
Like, no, I learned everything I knew about uh, white base piloting from Captain Paolo. Uh, he's he's put into a little um little orange pill thing, and they they shoot him out the side of the white base uh, while Scotty plays bagpipes. Uh, uh, and this reminds Amuro of his dad for some reason. Um, I was joking about it before, but I do think it's very funny that this is the moment that Amuro's like, where's my dad? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny to compare this to, to I think it's the, maybe, uh, no, it, it is earlier this episode where uh, at one point when, when Shara's getting ready to do the attack on Luna, too, he's like, huh, maybe I did see Sela. Just, just sort of, yeah, there's a lot of just sort of like, oh yeah, that did happen. I've, it's fun. You're right. I, I did pass over it because there's no new information. No, really. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not even like a you know, direct line. He's just sort of like, Sailor. Yeah, he, he just remember. He's like, okay, I am have a secret identity. Part of my secret identity is that I have a sister named Artesia, who right now is going by Sailor, but I don't know that. Mm-hmm. What I do know is that I have... Uh, Dulcim extending legs, which I used to kick the gun out of her hand, which this show kindly reminds us of. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Amro thinking about his dad and what happened to his dad uh, as a we see an object fly away into space, as if to sort of emphasize what happened to his dad. Uh, you know, and uh, we end the episode. We're 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 episode four, uh, Escape from Luna Two. We have successfully done that. We are heading back to Earth, I believe, is there our next goal mm-hmm. to get those refugees away and to figure out what the fuck the next step is. Uh, I think I think we have another episode before we reach Earth proper. Um, but more importantly, the next episode we'll be seeing the most important machine that is shown off in this show, which is, of course, the Gundam Hammer. The Gundam mm. Hammer will make its first appearance in episode five. Thank goodness. And I'm, I'm very excited. So excited. The Gundam Hammer, as we all know, is the Gundam's greatest weapon, uh, the most thematically relevant to, to Gundam content, and significant to the speedrun. It's true. <laughs> the, the tragedy in Jaburo would be a very difficult final level in the journey to Jaburo speedrun without the Hammer. The Hammer really brings it home. That's fantastic. I love thinking about that every time, especially because Tamino hates that hammer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that brings our discussion of episodes three and four to an end. Boys, I, I know I went through uh, a lot of what happened in episode four kind of quick. Was there anything that I, I skimmed over that we wanted to hit on before we wrap things up? You know, I think I hit all my talking points. One, uh, PMC yeah, I, well, I just sort of have a, a general high-level question because you know we we've done this historical labor, or I should really should say uh, Stephen Hero did of you know uh, bringing us into mind of some of its predecessors and peers, and um, I feel like at times the conversation between Gundam and its uh, mecha predecessors and peer, uh, peers. Like, does it ever come across as... I, I think Gundam does a great job of doing the real robot thing for the benefit of telling a different kind of story and for the benefit of the characters. Does it ever feel to you guys like it is coming across as, well, this wouldn't work because the you know the, the military bureaucracy would take the secret weapon back or there, there would be civilian damage or, or things like that. I mean, some of these things do come up, in, as you mentioned, in Zambot 3. 
And so I was just sort of wondering to myself and in, in, you know, in, in my notes was, does this ever come across as, as grading? Does Real Robot feel reactionary at times? Like the beginning of Pat Labor, the OVA, when uh, they're name dropping like Mazinger and stuff. Right. Not to that point. I would say that personally, I like these small details. Mm-hmm. I think they add a lot of personality to the world. And as of episode four, I do not think they are obnoxious or reactionary yeah. for me. Yet. As I said, I, I think it works because I think it is in the service of telling a story. It's not interested. It's not saying we're going to be different to you know, to be smarter. It's going to be we're going to be different. We're going to tell this story, which is you know the the ideal case. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to plead the fifth on that for right now. Um, not because I don't have an answer right this second, but I think that this is something I'm going to be exploring more as we proceed. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think inarguably, even if I did feel that that was the case, that I, I lost that battle mm-hmm, because sure. Real Robot, the genre, exists now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Um, but I, I do think that's a great question, honestly, because there's a certain amount of it that I detected very early on, but I, I don't think it was in these two episodes as much, mm-hmm. really. And and I'm interested in how that continues to go as we move forward. If I'll notice, there are particular authors who, you know, or writers that, that might have particular scenarios or, or grievances in mind. I, I think that's a really interesting question. That's definitely something I'm concerned with, DMC. Yeah. Uh, that's I, I, maybe it, the way to put it. Yeah, no, it's something I wanted to bring up now because I feel like it's something that you know we can check in and be like, ah, yes, this thing, you weren't. This isn't being deployed for for a character or, or a plot. It's being deployed because, like, well, obviously, you know, Mazinger is dumb or something, right. like, Something to that effect. Right. I, like for example, the Gundam Catapult, I thought it was a cool, nice touch. Like it, it makes sense that a. a uh, a mobile suit weighing who knows how many tons wouldn't be able to launch itself into space without a little extra help. So I thought the catapult mm-hmm. was like a not only a cool bit of am, a, animation, but a cool bit of world. Yeah, too. and it ties into real life military history because it's just like an aircraft carrier. Like, of course, you would have a catapult like you would have on an aircraft carrier. Right, right. No, I'm I'm curious. You know, right now, if I had to put a mum- number to it, if I had to put it on some kind of scale, I'd say for this set of episodes that that kind of reactionary quality to it you know not not without making it the bad kind you know <laughs> uh, uh is is sort of uh a minimal i would i would call it like a two this mm-hmm. is less concerned with sort of rejecting the old way as it is like this is just the way we're doing it does right. that make sense yeah yeah absolutely all right so we'll check in on that maybe we'll keep doing that like kind of uh rating system that scale that that spectrum of real robot reactionary uh, <laughs> quality robot geiger detector yeah exactly huh. um we'll, we'll we'll let you know as we continue our journey through mobile suit gundam next week we'll be talking about episodes five and six there will not be an interruption this time around so check in for that If you have any thoughts about our commentary or criticism this week, you can reach out to us at mechanationspod at gmail.com. We always like to hear from fans. Uh, We had an especially nice fan reach out to us over PMC Trilogy's uh, stream discord recently. Had some really interesting information about the effect of shoujo anime, uh, which we discussed during our history of Gundam uh, in the way that there maybe wasn't a direct pipeline, but definitely there were reverberations throughout the Mm -hmm. the industry at that time, which is all I was really saying earlier, which we appreciated. We really love hearing that stuff from y'all. So if you've got something like that, or you just want to 
to say hi. You want to tell us who your favorite host is. You want to tell us what our favorite aborted bit is or, you know, what kind of shows you want us to cover. We really want to hear that stuff. Mechanationspod at gmail.com. You could also reach us on Twitter. Mechanationspod at, uh, or is our Twitter handle, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I can be reached on Twitter at Ignis Maddox. Uh, uh, and I was also one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Uh, I was joined by... Steven Hero. You can check me out on Twitter at underscore Steven underscore Hero. Feel free to shout me out anytime. PMC Trilogy. I am on everything PMC Trilogy. You know, you'll find me on Twitter. You'll find me on Twitch. Sounds good. And you will catch us all next time looking for Noah Bright's painkillers. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you'll catch us next time uh, throwing the Gundam hammer around as we're trying to speedrun the final level of uh, Journey to Jopra.